Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. All right. Good morning. Are we there? There we are. Hello. Oh, let's do it. I got this. I got this dad thing lately, like parent moments and kid moments make me all emotional at just the worst times. So <laughs> that was really, really cool. You guys are great. Uh... Hi, <clears throat> I'm Tyler. I'm the student young adult pastor. Apologies for like over here. If you heard all that yelling, those are my people. Um, I do think my game guy has them playing tug of war right now. So uh, hopefully they wrap that up soon. Uh, this, is, this is not totally a new series. It's pretty new though. This is Radical Love, part of our uh, vision, mission and vision here at North Shore. So this was started a couple weeks ago by Scott, and then we had Brian, uh, one of our missionaries to Scotland, came last week. So now we're back into it. This is week two. Radical love in different forms, how that comes out, what it looks like, how do we do it. So this is radical love towards those we serve. And uh, with this passage that we're going to wrestle with this morning, couldn't get away from this idea of resource management. I think that's a particularly interesting topic. Um, Just kind of a fun thing to think about. Some of the best board games ever are around the idea of resource management, right? Started with Monopoly, even Risk to an extent. Now we got like Sellers of Catan and so on and so on. So that's, that's fun. Then you can also have these projects in school where maybe you were part of one of these where uh, you got different countries or something against each other and you're trying to figure out how to raise resources or take care of them and balance things and you can have cool competitions in in school and all that. Um, And then this story uh, that makes me smile a lot just happened recently. so, so for some context, one of my hobbies uh, for about four years now, I've actually been able to write uh, news and articles for a, a sports blog for uh, some Seahawks stuff. So I've been doing that for a while, a lot of fun. And uh, my kids know I do that, especially Emery, my, my three and a half year old, because uh, she's seen me sometimes, she's like, Dad, come play this thing. I'm like, hold on, got to post the, the field goals article. And then I come play. So she knows I do this. About four or five weeks ago, we were hanging out and she just randomly asked me, I think after I, I finished one, she's like, Dad, why do you write for the Seahawks? And just, I thought I was being smart and funny, a dad joke moment. I said, why? I, I write the articles uh, so that we can pay for you and Reagan snacks. Like you guys eat a lot of snacks. And so I write so we get a little bit of money, we can buy all you guys snacks. And she, she took that very seriously. She's like, yeah, okay. So a week ago, we're at the zoo. We're getting ready to leave the zoo. We're getting into the car. It's been a great day. And Emery uh, wants a bar like a granola bar kind of thing. And we didn't have any. We just brought other stuff. We didn't bring bars. So she's in the car, and this is very sad news. There's no bar. And she looks right at me, my three-year-old, and says, Dad, you have to write another article. Uh, so we, I laughed all day. I thought that was hilarious. My three, so she gets it, right? This idea of, of resources. And so I I say all that as we get into this, and we're going to wrestle with a couple passages, I'm going to operate a little bit out of the assumption that you at least kind of want to help other people, maybe sometimes. You have a motivation to serve others, to, to give of yourself, to do something kind for someone else. Now to the Christian, there's an even added motivation of being like Jesus, so on and so forth. 
But if we're honest, this idea of resource management comes into play here because it can be one of the biggest hindrances to our serving. At least this feeling like there's not enough to go around. I don't have enough to give. And often that's even something besides financially. So it might be money, but it might be time. It might be energy. It might be ability. Something where I don't have enough within me. So I want to look at two stories in the Bible this morning. If you need one, raise your hand as our team comes forward. But two biblical stories, I think pretty cool ones, that challenge our perspective, help reshape our perspective a little bit around this idea of uh, what is enough. So the first one is going to be from 1 Kings chapter 17. And this is going to feature the prophet Elijah, who is one of the major prophets uh, in the Old Testament. He uh, takes up a good chunk of 1 Kings. And, and Elijah speaks during a time. He's the one that God said there would be a famine over the land around Israel and, and all of its neighbors. And so Elijah uh, declared that there would be no rain for a number of years. Food would be hard to come by. And so that was the period in which uh, they were living. And he had was a pretty well-known story in the Bible, this, this confrontation um, with the false prophets of Baal and this battle on Mount Carmel, which is a delicious place to have a battle. And this whole thing where there was no rain and they used up water and, and Elijah calls down fire uh, and, and the God of heaven won this showdown. So that Elijah. So this is in 1 Kings chapter 17. This is before that story, but the famine has started. So I'll start with verse 5 of 1 Kings 17 which says, Elijah went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Right away, one of the things that, that, that stood out to me was this kind of reminded me of, of the attitude or, or prayer even of the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our, our daily bread. And so this is being lived out here for Elijah. And after a while, verse 7, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And I want to comment on just one, one thing in this first uh, paragraph. I don't think this is all that uncommon. In fact, it is not uncommon at all for God to give enough for today and not necessarily like a three or five or ten year plan. So God is sustaining Elijah by sending enough food for that day. And then again, and then again. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. 
And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So just a few observations from this story. Uh, One, I, I find it interesting that the Bible at times is so subtle about miracles. There is no, there's almost no attention even given to what happened here. You, you, you could miss it if you're just reading fast, but um, what, what happens is this food is multiplied over and over and over again. There's this, there's this miraculous multiplication of resources, and there's no fanfare given to it. It's just a simple uh, declaration, description of what God did in this moment. And this is a very personal story. This has to do with just Elijah and a widow and her only son. There's three people involved and and Elijah comes and and makes a very personal request. Specifically, is there some food that you could give me? And it comes at a time, I mentioned this is during a famine, comes when resources are extremely dire. And we saw that in verse 12. What the widow actually believes, what, what she's doing is collecting just enough. She's about to go make her last meal. They're, they're going to have just enough to eat one more time, and then she believes that that's it. The resources have completely run dry. And yet, what we get to see in this miracle is a faith in response to Elijah's ask. She says, well, there's, there's not enough. And he says, don't, don't fear. And so she does what is being said. She decides to, to trust in that, to make the food for Elijah. And the result is enough to sustain a small family for a very long time. And so this is not just even, you know, great, cool, this thing God did one day. It's actually going to continue and continue. And what I found really interesting in that is, is the promise was given without an actual end date. That was verse 14. Elijah says, the jar of flour will not be spent. The jug of oil will not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So here's what the promise was. If you trust God in this, if you give right now, God will give you enough until God decides to change something. That was the promise. It wasn't you'll have enough for the week. It wasn't this will last you two years. It wasn't that you'll never need food again. It was that you will have enough until the Lord changes something. This was very open-ended, but blessed promise from the Lord. And again, I I reflect on how much of life, our life, comes down to whether we have enough resources. 
How many decisions we make based on that? To buy something, to go and do something, to, to, to be with one or more specific people, <laughs> to be patient, right? What, what type of resources do I have within me to be able to do this thing? Do I have enough, yes or no? But what's really cool, this is not an isolated story in the Bible. And I think if we compare it to another one with, that, that involves Jesus and some of his interaction, uh, we begin to draw out a little of how this radical love works. So the second story I wanted to compare this one to uh, is from the New Testament, from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6 is a pretty well-known story. It's the feeding of, of a very large group of people. It might be called the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle besides the resurrection of Jesus that's in all four Gospels. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus is hard at work in his ministry and a large crowd has come around him. And I will pick this up in verse 5, uh, John 6 verse 5. So lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, one of his disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So take note, first of all, this is twice now the adults in the room have said, there's not enough. Said it would take a ton of money to give everybody even just a little bit of food. And then Andrew says, well, here's, here's some food that someone has brought, but that's pitiful in terms of what we need. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, meaning the, the whole group is probably more than 10,000 people. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And again, notice so casually the Bible describes this miracle. It's just part of the sentence that Jesus multiplied, made more bread and more bread. Uh, so let's unpack this. What I learned from these two stories as we hold them side by side, in both instances, an opportunity to serve arose. In fact, there was actually a, a direct request from Elijah in 1 Kings and from Jesus in John 6. There was a need, there was an opportunity to serve, there was an ask. Do you have any food? And in both cases, we read uh, from different people an initial hesitancy to give the last of something followed by trust in God. 
right? Well, this is, this is all that I have, says the widow. Or, or from the disciples, we're never going to get enough. But followed by somebody who was willing to trust God. And then what we get to see is a multiplying of resources. Enough for everyone. And in both cases, actually more than enough for everyone. Right? For days on end, the widow and her family were sustained. And, and in here, what started with just enough lunch for a boy became, there were leftovers after everyone had eaten. So I think in this, to, to serve others in these stories was to give something that was going to cost. And then God did the real work, and the end result was people's needs being met and an increased worship of Jesus. And then one difference that I think is at least worth noting, the, the recipients and the contexts were a little different here. In, in the story in Kings with Elijah, it's a small group, but being uh, sustained for a long period of time. For days and days. And then here in John, we saw a huge moment, a huge crowd, and they were given enough for that moment. So a couple of different ways that serving played out in these contexts. So what do we do with this? How then should we serve? What does radical love mean in this arena? How, how do we take these stories and kind of put, put them on the ground um, I think it might be helpful to start with an interesting comparison, potentially helpful reminder, and that's just simply that Christians do not actually have the corner market on serving. This is not completely unique to Christianity. In fact, I had a really interesting interaction uh, a number of years ago. After college, I, I coached a, a high school track team for a few years, and uh, fascinating conversation with, with one of those moms. Uh, she was kind of an assistant coach. Her kid was on the team. And, uh, you know, everybody knew what else I did. So they knew I was a, a youth pastor. It felt like one of those conversations where people know you're a pastor. They don't really know what to say or what to do with that. So they start talking about stuff. So this mom started just randomly one day talking about how, like, youth group would be great without the Jesus in it. And I was like, I, I don't know what that means. Um, but, but she was kind of describing like different, different elements of what she thought youth group contained, you know, or, or young life or things like that. She said, man, it just, it's great. Like, I think kids need a place where they can come together and have some community and, and, and play games and have this safe space where there's adults they can process with and, and even learn, you know, how to, how to be good citizens, how to go and do good things for other people and all that. And, you know, if we had those just without the religious component, man, I'd be all for that. And I thought, you know, just one that was really interesting. I was like 23. I didn't know what to do with that. But, but here's this, this concept that at least at some level, what the Christians are doing is a good thing. She thought it would be great if her kids grew up uh, wanting to serve others, independent of any spiritual motivation. The idea of serving is a good one. Here's just a couple more examples. I've um, got two pictures. Found this this week, just poking around. This is from a completely secular uh, website. Just an article. Has nothing to do with Jesus or organized religion. But in it were three reasons why you should serve others. So here's part of point one. When you serve, you forget your own problems. 
Uh, there's another one, by serving others, you feel useful. And then three, serving others opens doors to solving your own problems. And on and on with some descriptions and, and all of that. Um, but this has no spiritual motivation forever. This is just uh, th- th- that serving can benefit you in these ways. And then another one, um, there, are, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of nonprofits around the world. This is just uh, one website that was number one on somebody's ranking. I don't know what that means, but um, there's entire organizations full of people who have dedicated significant amounts of their time to helping other people. Uh, void of spiritual motivation, at least as an entity. And so here's, here's one of them. The idea of serving is not unique to Christianity. I don't, however, want to overburden that point uh, because many of the best nonprofits around the world and organizations of people and hospitals were started by Christians. There is something different about the followers of Jesus And while in my experience, most every rational soul that I've encountered believes that doing good things for other people is a moral right, um, Jesus gave a specifically distinct example of it that sets his followers on a different level. Christians are not the only ones who serve, but they're better at it. So I was asking why. John 13 contains some of the, uh, the heartbeat of this particular series, Radical Love. Uh, John 13 contains one of the last conversations with Jesus. This is around the Passover time, shortly before crucifixion. And, and in John 13 in particular, he washes his disciples' feet. And so out of that conversation, John 13, verse 14 and 15, just just look at this. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then I love this. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So we have a direct mission from our Lord and Savior to serve like Jesus served. And and, and there's kind of two things. One is he's doing something radical. He's doing a very humbling servant type of act in the washing of feet. But even if we detach that and just take the statement that Jesus says, that's a pretty powerful sentence, an incredible mission. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. In all things, our example, our motivation is Jesus. And so notice how important this this distinction the Bible makes. Uh, Because in my experience and in what I read and what I found this week and in just conversations I've had, the secular position trends towards giving and serving out of your excess. Have some time, do something kind. Have a surplus of money, figure out somewhere to send it. But remember our, our two little heroes of our stories. What did they give? At the end of the day, essentially, they gave everything. 
or at the least they gave enough to where it was going to hurt. They gave up what they had. It wasn't out of excess. It was what they felt up to all they had. So I think this, out of our, out of our stories, a Christian reflects the radical love of Jesus by serving others even at noticeable cost. On one hand, because it is right, but also empowered by the promise that God will multiply resources. It's not necessarily safe and it's definitely not comfortable. But this is what Jesus did for us and it is the invitation, even the, the calling that Jesus has invited us into. And it is good. And it is life-changing on an eternal level. Um, in Jesus' ministry on earth, what we can read in the Gospels, there were a couple of different categories of people or at least categories of needs that Jesus encountered. So some people, he served through relationship. And we have incredible stories like the woman at the well in John 4 where Jesus simply has a conversation and he talks about who she is and who he is and kind of has a breakdown of, of, of theology, so to speak, and that was enough to change her world forever and to change the lives of those around her on an eternal level. And at the same time, there were other people that Jesus encountered who didn't start there. Uh, there are numerous accounts of people who were blind or crippled or had some significant physical need. And Jesus started there. He served them through meeting physical needs. And through that initiation, their world began to be changed on an eternal level as they were then opened to, their, their minds and hearts were opened to see and receive and hear who Jesus is. So he served in a couple of different ways. It's a constant truth in, in youth ministry, as long as I've been around it, that many probably most of the volunteers, the adult leaders that I have in there, are there because of the impact some other adult leader had on them. So if you ask most of my leaders, why are you here? At some point you'll get to, whether it was a paid youth pastor or a volunteer leader, somebody who gave significant time, who listened to them, who became their friend, who welcomed them, whatever it was. And so I've heard so many of these stories where, where it's like, well, 10 years ago, whoever did this for me. And it's almost like, well, I can't not go and do the same thing now. In fact, I would argue that everyone in this room has been meaningfully impacted by an act of service from a Christian. Whether you right now believe in Jesus or not, whether it was in the church or outside of the church, I would bet that there has been in your life a time when a Christian did something for you that was especially meaningful. It's just kind of what Christians do. And it continues to have an impact on others. So, how and what can we do? 
I want to speak to three categories of people in this arena, maybe. Um, categories such as uh, not involved, pretty involved, can't not be involved. All right? And the reason I want to do that is um, because your, what was asked in our two stories was everything. As you go through life, your everything changes. So here's what I mean by that. Um, I still, I'll never forget this story. Uh, there was a time when I first started getting into running. Um, I thought I was going to be a baseball player. Then I quickly found out most of them are like bigger than me. Um, and so tried something else. So I started running. And this was about my, my, my freshman year of high school. We were still living in California. So I'd started running, was getting into it, thought it was going great. And uh, I remember one time I did a little loop around my house, made it all the way to the bowling alley, came back, went to my house, and I had run two miles. I was like, this is awesome. And, and I will always remember this. Somehow, I don't know why, but I, I told this to a family friend uh, who had sons who were runners. And so we were, we were chatting and she heard I was trying to become a runner. She was like, how is it going? I said, it's great. Uh, yesterday I ran two miles. And she said, is that all? <laughs> and that was a bummer. Um, but for context, her, her two sons were collegiate runners. They actually ran at the school that I ended up running at. And they were doing about 75 or more miles per week. So two miles is nothing compared to that. On that Tuesday, for me, it was agony. <laughs> but years and years and years later, I got to the point after running for uh, way too long, uh, that two miles became a small warm-up, right? I had grown. I had become stronger. I had become used to what it was like. And what cost, what hurt, what was everything was vastly different 15 years later. So, if you've never jumped into this, if you come into this building and you receive maybe worship and leave, your everything is to get started. Just like all of us, if you take up some kind of new venture, if it's running, you know exactly what I'm talking about because it's not comfortable. <laughs> Uh, but that everything is to just get started. It's to foot in the door. It's to commit to some kind of uh, lifestyle, some pattern, some, some commitment of serving. I, I do not particularly like doing lists in this context. Give 45 examples of what you could do. But, 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 but just hear my heart on this. That doesn't mean, I am not only giving an invitation to go volunteer for a ministry at North Shore. That's not what this is. In fact, this whole concept, this title, Radically Love Those We Serve, we are blurring two of our four vision statements at North Shore to radically love each other are things that take place within the body of believers. It might be a volunteer ministry. It might be something that you do for someone in this church. But we are also called to compassionately serve our neighbors, which are things that we do primarily outside the context of this church. And so I'm not going to make a list of, of what that looks like, um, but there may be something that Jesus has on your heart that the Holy Spirit has been tugging on you where in this area you might feel you don't have the resources. 
And what I believe God has made abundantly clear is that he's prepared to multiply those resources to enable you to do what he wants you to do. Now, on another level, perhaps one day you did start. Perhaps you've been around some churches or you've been a Christian for a number of years. You're more uh, veteran. You might be an every week volunteer in something even. Your everything is still out there. It's changed. In fact, it's very easy to get to a point where something that was a stretch at first has become so easy and normal and commonplace for you that it is just now simply part of the routine. And you're no longer giving something of cost. It actually would be more weird if you didn't do that thing. Maybe you've been holding the same door open for 10 years. Maybe you've been uh, hanging out with a group of kids in the same room for who knows how long. Chances are you've grown comfortable and it doesn't cost as much anymore. And by this, I am not just saying do more things. But it might be that Jesus has a new venture for you. It might be that Jesus has brought something new to your mind or your heart that is going to be uncomfortable, that will cost something. There might be a new and uncomfortable world where the Holy Spirit will give you what you need. I mean, kind of similar to that, but along those lines, for, for some people in this room, this whole, this whole sermon has actually uh, had a little bit of an odd tension. These, these are the people who can't not serve. From the moment we started talking, you're like, I already do all of this. This is for my Enneagram twos. Uh, that might have missed a whole bunch of you, but for maybe a couple of you, everything just clicked. And so this, this is not me, but this is some people in my family who wake up ready to help others. Like, this is what I do. I love it. It gives me energy. All I want to do is help people. You have been blessed here, and that is okay. There are uh, different elements of what it means to be a Christian that come more naturally to some of us than others. And many of our best examples, right, if we were to think of people, man, that person is such a servant, might be you. <laughs> might be those types of people where this just comes more naturally. But I want to say to you some of the same things. Do not let that become an idol. For you, for all of us, serving does not get you more approval from God. We sang it already this morning. If you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God, chosen and accepted. What or how much you serve doesn't change any of that. But at the end of the day, as a child of God, we are right to want to imitate our Savior in that invitation to serve others. And so in all of that, I would say even still, if we're being honest, whether you've, whether you've served one time and hated it, whether you are a commander of a ministry, I don't know if commander is the right word, whatever. Uh, if you've been doing this really long time, don't at times we all get a little tired. We get a little fed up. Man, I, just not today. Don't we sometimes get a little discouraged that what we're doing isn't maybe accomplishing what we hoped it would do? Or we get frustrated with people who are either in charge or in our way? Don't we sometimes get bored? 
to that, I would ask this question from our two stories. Who multiplies the resources? God multiplies the resources. God determined the outcome of those stories. You and I don't get to designate the resources that we give. We don't get to determine the outcome. And in fact, in my, my experience, this may be for you. This may be where some of that weariness comes from. If you've volunteered in the church, if you've done acts of compassion outside the church, if you've tried to step into this, and sometimes there's resistance, sometimes there's weariness. It might be this, where over time, we try to become a little bit more of the boss of how much to give or where it goes or what should happen after we do that. That's not the invitation. And in fact, that's been true for me. Some of the times I've been the most frustrated, the most discouraged at a couple different points, the times when I've wanted to quit ministry. As I reflect back, it's been when I have wanted to be the one dictating the outcome or I've been trying to muster up all of the resources needed to go and do the thing. And that's not the promise. That's not the ask. God multiplies the resources and God determines the outcome. So whatever it is, if you feel like you don't have enough, yes. <laughs> We're just humans. We have very real limitations. We don't have enough. But check out with just a little bit, the last meal or with a boy's lunch, what Jesus was able to accomplish. It takes way more than what we have to give. So I want to invite the, the worship team uh, to help us reflect on this. And, and I want to conclude with just a thought here. I would say that faith, faith in Jesus helps us fight the sinful tendency to hoard. This isn't COVID anymore. The toilet paper is not going anywhere. Um, but it's America that says you've got to build up and you've got to keep. And that's just not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I can take care of you. And even through you, I can actually take care of others. A bunch of others, maybe. Through your faithful offering, be it time, energy, abilities, wisdom, whatever it is, Jesus can multiply that into something incredible. And that's pretty radical. God, um, we, we want, help us to live into this. Help us to let go of some of that fear and also some of that control that perhaps with an open hand we could just respond to needs that we see around us or invitations that you have on our heart. Guys, so fitting we, we ended... Um, our worship earlier with a perfect song. If more of you means less of me, take everything. God, two examples here of people who gave. Would you help us to see where that is and to step out into faith, not waiting until we feel like we have it all together, but trusting that you will give us what we need. Let us live this love out for others. In your name we pray. Amen.